from WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, we continue the Fresh Air series of some of our favorite music interviews from our archive. We start with the godfather of soul, the hardest working man in show business, soul brother number one. They all mean the same thing, James Brown. I got ass in my pants and I need to dance. We'll listen back to my 2005 interview with him. Also, we'll hear my 1986 interview with songwriter Ellie Greenwich. She co-wrote hits from the early 60s like Be My Baby, Leader of the Pack, and Chapel of Love. And Justin Chang will review the new film, 3,000 Years of Longing, directed by George Miller, who made the Mad Max films. It stars Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton. We're celebrating this holiday weekend with a couple of our favorite music interviews from our archive. Starting with James Brown. He was called the godfather of soul, but it's impossible to imagine funk or even hip-hop without the rhythmic innovations of James Brown. As a singer, band leader, and performer, he influenced generations of musicians around the world. And even though he died in 2006 at age 73, James Brown continues to be influential. My interview with him was recorded in 2005 after the publication of his autobiography, I Feel Good. The man needs no introduction, but here's a great one. So now, ladies and gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? Thank you, and thank you very kindly. It is indeed a great pleasure to present to you at this particular time, national and international known as the hardest working man in show business. Man, they're saying I'll go crazy. Try me. You've got the power. Think. If you want me, I don't mind. Bewildered. Million dollar seller lost someone. The very latest release, Night Train. Let's everybody shout and shimmy. Mr. Dynamite, the amazing Mr. Please Please himself, the star of the show, James Brown and the Famous Flame. Now, we've all heard your MC introduce you over the years. Why yes. did you want an MC? to introduce you in this fantastic way. <laughs> well, because it's dramatic, it dramatizes a lot, and it's a build-up what show business should be about. Show business should really be a build-up, and then uh, once you go into it, you, you like live it. But it should be a great fanfare and a production, and that gets to the people, the chords, different chords, different kind of way you say it. The same as a minister would do in church, a coach would do to his team. You have to have a, a way of getting started, and that's probably the best way that I know of with a dramatic introduction. Did you tell him what to say? Yes. And one of the things your MC has always done is like put on your cape, take off your cape. Why did you want to wear a cape? The cape is because I saw a wrestler by the name of Gorgeous George, and uh, Gorgeous George was a flamboyant wrestler, and we wore curls in his hair at that time, and he was really sharp and really different, a little early for most people. 
uh, you expect him to win if he didn't win. So it was, it was kind of a thing where uh, he was a great wrestler, so it made great for his production. It made him quite... He was, uh, Gordy's George reminded me a lot of Hulk Hogan. The wrestler, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, have you always had your clothes made for you? Um, most of the time I designed them. I stopped wearing red suits years ago, and they thought we were crazy. And But uh, we wanted people to say, there he is, not where he is. I want to play I Got You, I Feel Good, one of your most famous songs. You have two versions of this. The first one you didn't release. You weren't happy with it. This was in 1964. What was wrong with the original version? What made you think it's not ready yet? It's not right yet? you got to get it where it sinks with the people or where they're at, you know. Um, I Feel Good was cut first with a jazz concept because I have a broad... Uh, and a great, uh, a more of ability to do more than one kind uh, 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 of music or uh, 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 hear one kind of thing. There are so many directions that I go in, you know. So what I did, I, um, I uh, went back, and, and about 4 o'clock in the morning, I called my band leader at that time, was called, his name was Nat Jones. I recorded I Feel Good in, in, in Chicago. And uh, it was too too sharp, too slick. Had a baritone, you know, and the syncopation was so sharp. So I had to cut something. It was like, I feel good. Da 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 da. We call that staccato because it hits right on all the points. Dun 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 dun. In the in the drum. So what we did, we wanted to get more of a funk feeling, a sanctified feeling. So we changed it and slowed it down. Wow, I feel good. And that's two different kind of things. See? That's, one is jazz because sharp mixes, and the other one kind of laid back and uh, gave you a little rock and roll feeling at that, that time as well. Uh, so uh, we went with the, uh, the laid back cut because that fit the street and fit the dances. A good thing I could dance because by being able to dance, I could really tell that that the new arrangement, the new concept I had for it, really fell right in place. What was the difference between the dancing you could do with the second version compared to the first? Well, you could do the street dances. The first verse was, uh, you might even do ballroom and everything with it, but the second verse was strictly for get down from the street. Right. And we need street action. That's what's basically wrong with the music there. A lot of it don't go street. Okay, well, let's hear both of these versions back-to-back, uh, the, unre- the unreleased and the released versions of James Brown, I Got You, I Feel Good. Well, you'll notice that, that the, uh, the, the unreleased has a baritone in it mm-hmm. with a heavy sound, and the other one don't have the baritone, but you, you'll see the difference. Let's hear it. Of James Brown's I Got You, I Feel Good. 
Mr. Brown, the way you start that record with your, um, if, I, if I do it, I'll sound ludicrous, but, you know, the ow at the very beginning, um, that's, it's such, <laughs> it's so great. Um, can you talk a little bit, bit about how you started doing that? Well, the screaming and stuff come, I must admit one thing about it, uh, a lot of the screaming, uh, we, uh, it was during that time when uh, Little Richard was real big and, uh, uh, Roy Brown, people like that. Basically. The screaming kind of came down the line, but Little Richard is really responsible for more screaming than I am because uh, he used to do that, whoo, all that stuff years ago, wasn't he? He was more or less into it. He was sanctified, and I was I was a holy, but I wasn't sanctified, you know. So we uh, uh, kind of just borrowed things from a lot of each other, but Little Richard was very instrumental in a lot of the screaming. Well, shortly after you recorded I Got You, you recorded Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. And I want to quote something that you say in your memoir, I Feel Good. You say, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag changed everything again for me and my music. I didn't need melody to make music. That was, to me, old-fashioned and out of step. I now realized I could compose and sing a song that used one chord or two at the most. How, no. did, how did you start oh. reducing your songs to being more about rhythm than about melody? What I did with that, I I uh, I brought um, just a lot of my songs that melody, but like I feel good, that's melody, all that stuff. But mm-hmm. rhythm all the way through the song. And I was just, um, I mean, even rock and roll stuff had melody, you know. But I went with more of a jazz concept gospel situation. Now, um, at about this time, your beat really starts shifting from the two and the four to the one and the three. Can you talk a little well, bit about that shift? Started, yeah, go ahead. It started that with Papa's bag. Right. Uh, from that point on, it was one and three. And uh, even before I feel good, Papa's bag had the one and three. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can, can, can you maybe just clap for us the difference? Well, uh, one is laid back, and uh, it's like, dun, ding, dun, bum. Uh, I say, um, the one has syncopation. I mean, that's the difference. Uh, and you count it off, you right on the one, bam, doom, bang, bang. And then the other one, you say, one and a two, and you'd be on a two, see, but with two is the upbeat, and I'm on the downbeat. That's the difference. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, was it hard to convince the musicians that this would work, or did they get it right away? No, I paid them. <laughs> and, they played with it. and they played what I wanted, and that was it, because they would have never agreed. They would have never agreed to it? They would have never agreed. Why not? Well, because it was in their head that Mozart, Schubert, Beethoven, Strauss, Bach, Chopin, was correct. And they tell me that I was wrong. So they thought that that, that was a law in music. There's no law in music. There's a freedom in music. You get tired of being bedded down to one thing. Mm-hmm. So you start saying what you feel. Well, why don't we hear Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, which you recorded in 1965. Brand new bag. Oh, yeah, and this is crazy scene. 
That's James Brown doing one of his best-known songs, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, recorded in 1965. We'll hear more of my 2005 interview with him after a break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to my 2005 interview with James Brown, recorded after the publication of his memoir, I Feel Good. Now, some of the musicians in your band became famous in their own right uh, later on. Maceo Parker, Fred Wesley, Bootsy Collins. And, um, you know, I interviewed Bootsy Collins a few years ago. And one of the things he said, I mean, he loved playing in your band. But one of the things he said is that it was hard for him to be so disciplined. It was around 1970. Uh, the era when you were recording Sex Machine, and he said, you know, everyone was freaking out, but we were standing up there being the tightest band in the land, having to wear suits and patent leather shoes, and you couldn't jump out in the audience and freak out and act crazy, and that's what we wanted to do. Did you know that someone like, say, Bootsy Collins really wanted to, like, be wild and crazy, and you wanted this really tight, disciplined band? Well, I taught them organization. Uh, They didn't have organization. And, um, Discipline is very important. Uh, you wouldn't take, you know, I want them where they could play at West Point as well as play in the street on the corner. I mean, West Point, a Navy Academy place. I want them to be able to go anywhere. And see, when I went to play Papa's Bag and stuff like that, I could play for the president, then I go and play for the people in the street. That's what you call uh, being totally accepted and being totally straight about what you felt. Now, do you ever find musicians? You, I know you used to find musicians, didn't you? Oh, yes. I'll do it now, but, you know, the musicians now, they have a lot more respect, and they're more intense on doing right. So, Mr. Brown, what are some of the things you find musicians for back in the day? Oh, a lot of ma- major things. I did a total program, like a West Point. They got to be clean, neat, the shirt got to be pressed, shoes got to be shined, the suit got to be pressed, uh, they got to play correct. They can't be looking off when they should be uh, watching me because then they miss something. I find them. What's the biggest fine you ever gave? I don't know. Maybe 500. Now, I want to change musical directions for a second. And y- y- through, through your career, you've recorded, you know, ballads as well as, as you know, uh, f- a funk. And in 1969, you made uh, an album with a jazz band, the, the Lewis Belson band. And it was uh, mostly or completely ballads on here. And I thought we'd listen to one of those ballads because it's a really different side of you. You know, we were talking before about how you, you kind of... Um, focus more on rhythm than melody in a lot of your songs, but here you are really focusing on the, on the melody. Can you tell us why you wanted to record this album of jazz standards with a, a jazz band behind you? What I really liked Otto Nelson because he made those, those horns uh, shout. And he did all the arrangements and, on the record. Yeah, he did. Uh, I wanted his stuff, I, but I, you know, my concept was, was so different. Uh, there's so many customers. I need a key to turn me on, which was very hard for me because it was Louis Belson's song, uh, who was a drummer, and uh, his wife was, was Miss Pearl Bailey. Uh, it was different. It was also different for me to do it some man's, man's world because I did What Kind of Fool Am I, the Sammy Davis thing, and uh, I knew I, want, I wanted to go there, so I heard those people do it, and I knew how I would do it, so... It was really quite an experience. Well, actually, that's the track I wanted to play, What Kind of Fool Am I? Um, What kind of fool am I? Yes, I... 
it's so interesting to hear you sing like this. So w- why don't we play it and 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 I'll sit back and listen. You, know, you sound like you'd get ready to sing something then. No, oh, I wish. <laughs> okay, let's take a listen now. Okay. What kind of am I who never fell in love? It seems that I'm the only one that I've been thinking of. Tell me, what kind of man is this? Now, I, I mentioned that the album of ballads was recorded a year after Say It Loud. Let me ask you about Say It Loud on Black and I'm Proud. You say in your book th- that um, um, a lot of, you think a lot of white people misinterpreted the meaning of the song. Uh, I think they didn't understand it because I said I'm black and I'm proud. I thought they, called it, they thought it was some kind of uh, revolutionary or uh, uh, something that would separate us or something that would preach black power and, and, and come into violence. But what they didn't know was trying to uh, let them know that we should be proud of who we are and not feel down and left out. And later on, some whites asked me to record it again because they thought it was getting a little hairy in the street. And uh, they thought the blacks should be a little bit more proud of themselves and and not go off and worry about what the Caucasians are doing or Italian or German or whatever. They, they, they thought it was a great idea later on. Uh, what inspired you to record it in the first place? Well, uh, they, I was in Vegas, I mean, in, in L.A., and during that time, some police shot four or five Muslims, uh, uh, from the Islamic world, and it became a real mess there. So I read and recorded, said, loud and black and proud, and uh, tried to uh, send a message not only to the, to the white, but to the black as well, that uh, pride was important, uh, and not power. Uh, with the word power and pride was so misunderstood. And uh, I, I thought that pride was more important. It didn't mean I'm black and I'm bad, but black and I'm proud. Well, let's hear it. And this is James Brown, recorded in 1968. One other record I want to ask you about and that Sex Machine, recorded in 1970, one of your really big hits. And, um, you know, pop songs have always been about love and sex, but they never really used the word sex before in the lyrics, I think. <laughs> yeah. uh, what made you decide to actually use the word sex in Sex Machine? Well, um, sex, uh, uh, I don't know, if you're not far from it with the dancing and all that stuff. And the emulation that they do when you, they get on the floor, whether it's ballroom, two-stepping, uh, the funky chicken, or James Brown, or all these different things. So, and that's what's in your mind if you go by uh, a pool and see young ladies out there in the bathing suits, swimsuits, because the men don't draw them, the women do. Uh, I sighed, I would um, 
use that term because we was at this dance. I mean, the fellas girls at this dance. And uh, she was just sitting there, and he's sitting there, nobody doing anything. Uh, it was kind of just almost like wallflowers. So the fellow jumped up and said, get up. I feel like being like a sex machine, and let's dance. So they started that. That was the concept. And uh, it's not vulgar or, or relating to somebody else's girl or, or man. It says, I got mine, don't worry about his. The way I like it, the way it is. I mean, meantime, Ray's fine. I, I got mine, don't worry about his, you know. Was anybody worried, either your producers or disc jockeys, about no, uh, playing a record with James. the word sex actually in it? James Brown was producer, so it wasn't no problem. Okay. <laughs> Here's Sex Machine recorded in 1970. Fellas, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. Go ahead. Go ahead. I want to get into it, man, you know. Go ahead. Like a, like a sex machine, man. Yeah. Moving, doing it, you know. Yeah. Can I count it off? Go ahead. One, two, three, four. That's James Brown. He has a new memoir called "I Feel Good." Um, how did you learn to to dance and specifically to do to do splits? Well, I guess when I come from playing baseball. Wait a minute. Most most time, baseball players do not do splits. <laughs> well, that, that not a don't. But those years, Jackie Robinson, the first black man, came to Major League Baseball. And he was doing the split on first base. And they thought that was absurd. They, thought they, they couldn't believe it, but it was like a way of clowning. There was another black uh, baseball team called the Indianapolis Clowns. And the Kansas City Monarchs, before black, those were the Negro Leagues. And eventually, when uh, Robinson got into um, uh, Major League Baseball, he brought some of those traits with him. Uh, you know, we miss so much because had those black men had been able to play baseball then, it would be like the courts is today. Uh, 90% of all the players are black. So um, you first, I think, danced when you were a kid, and you, you danced on the street for pennies. I danced to pay the rent mm-hmm. for the soldiers. Tell us about some of those hardships, about what life was like when you you were very young. Um, James Brown, your mother left when you were uh, four, I think, and you were you lived yes, uh-huh. with an aunt. What what was the house like? Well, it was very very hard. I didn't have a place because my mother left, and uh, my dad uh, took me to see my uh, my grand aunt, uh, great aunt. And he was his grandmother. She raised me, kind of babysitted with my my daddy. Did uh, basic menial work that uh, that didn't have any skill about it. But uh, they had to go all over the country to find work, uh, like somewhat like they're doing now, Uh, having to find a place that common labor can make it. That's when I tell the kids to get education today because we never know. What's going to be up there for you, and if there if there will be anything for you? So um, it takes character and the contents of the character, like Dr. King said. My interview with James Brown was recorded in 2005 after the publication of his memoir "I Feel Good." He died the following year, 2006. 
A little later in the show, we'll hear my 1986 interview with songwriter Ellie Greenwich. In the new fantasy film, 3,000 Years of Longing, Tilda Swinton plays a literary scholar who has an encounter with a wish-granting genie, or djinn, played by Idris Elba. It's the first movie directed by George Miller since Mad Max Fury Road, and it's now playing in theaters. Our film critic Justin Chang has this review. I've always felt there's something a bit too self-conscious about movies that are explicitly about the magic of storytelling. Really, the best way to pay tribute to storytelling is to simply tell a good story, not to rattle on and on about how timeless stories are. That may explain why I felt both mildly charmed and a little worn out by the new movie 3,000 Years of Longing. It's adapted from a short story by the English writer A.S. Byatt, and much of it unfolds in an Istanbul hotel room where Idris Elba, taking a page from Scheherazade and her Thousand and One Nights, regales Tilda Swinton with one fantastical tale after another. Some of these tales are vivid and involving, but what they add up to is less than the sum of its many shimmering parts. Even still, the movie has its undeniable pleasures. The Australian director George Miller might be best known for his thrilling Mad Max series, but he's always had a flair for fantasy, as he's shown in marvelously inventive films like Babe Pig in the City and Happy Feet. In 3,000 Years of Longing, which he co-wrote with his daughter, Augusta Gore, Miller unveils an outlandish premise with a sly wit that's initially hard to resist. Tilda Swinton plays Alethea Binney, a modern-day literary scholar who specializes in the study of narratives, the way the same tropes and symbols tend to pop up in stories from different cultures and eras. While attending a conference in Istanbul, Alethea goes shopping in the bazaar and purchases a small glass bottle as a memento. Later, while she's cleaning the bottle in her hotel room, out in a burst of smoke pops an enormous gin, played by Idris Elba. After some amusing awkwardness, how would you react if confronted by a giant otherworldly intruder with hairy blue legs and pointy ears, the two settle into a long, heady, and whimsical conversation. Also, they're both wearing those plush white hotel bathrobes in the movie's most charming visual. The djinn tells Alethea that he was trapped in the bottle roughly three millennia ago by King Solomon. The only way for him to be freed is to grant three wishes to any human who possesses the bottle. You'd think that Alethea would jump at the chance, but being an expert on stories, she knows that wishes have a way of backfiring. And so she refuses to play along. You mock me. Three wishes, perfectly simple and theoretically safe. I was imprisoned by Solomon precisely because I cried out my heart's desire only by granting you yours may I earn my release. Yes, well, I appreciate the symmetry, but the thing is this. I cannot for the life of me summon up one eligible wish, and you're asking me for three. Is there any life in you? Are you even alive? You know, in some cultures, absence of desire means enlightenment. Then you are a pious fool. If I'm content, why tempt fate? And you're a coward. Don't goad me. There is no human, no angel, no djinn that wouldn't grasp at the chance to fulfill their deepest longings, and I am saddled with the one who claims to want nothing at all. Alethea Bini, you are a liar. Alethea has long seemed content with her solitary existence. 
She was married once, but now has no family, and books have provided the only companionship she needs. But as she talks to the djinn, her long-forgotten desires for love and connection begin to surface. The movie's point seems to be that these desires, or longings, lie at the heart of every great story. The djinn knows this firsthand. He tells Alethea about all the women he's fallen for over the centuries, starting with his first great love, the Queen of Sheba. More recently, his bottle fell into the hands of a brilliant 19th century woman who used her wishes not to acquire power or riches, but rather to gain more knowledge about the world. Their love burned bright for a spell, but ended, like the others, in tragedy. This is why the djinn has never been able to break free. His love for the humans who command him proves his undoing. Miller dramatizes those stories in vibrant flashbacks decorated with all manner of ornate visual effects. Sometimes the results can be garish, but sometimes they're genuinely entrancing. At their best, the djinn's stories achieve the quality of a great page-turner. But the movie becomes less effective as it raises the possibility of romance between Alethea and the djinn. Swinton and Elba are both superb and have a sweet, touching chemistry, but they never forge the kind of bond that feels passionate enough to transcend time and space. The movie tosses off some fascinating ideas in the closing stretch, including the way a djinn might feel redundant in a world where technology has become its own modern-day magic. But 3,000 years of longing ends on a muted, uncertain note. It left me faintly curious about what might happen next, which is not quite the same thing as wanting more. Justin Chang is film critic for the L.A. Times. He reviewed the new film 3,000 Years of Longing. Coming up, we'll hear my 1986 interview with songwriter Ellie Greenwich. She wrote many pop hits of the 60s, including Leader of the Pack, Chapel of Love, and Adu Ron Ron. This is Fresh Air Weekend. We're celebrating this holiday weekend with a couple of our favorite music interviews from the archive. This next interview is with the late songwriter Ellie Greenwich. She co-wrote many of the girl group hits of the 1960s, including these.
All the songs we just heard were co-written by Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Barry, who were briefly married. With the exception of Chapel of Love, which Greenwich and Barry co-produced, all the records we just heard were produced by Phil Spector, the first real genius of pop production. Ellie Greenwich didn't write exclusively for girl groups. Her songs include Leader of the Pack, recorded by the Shangri-Las, I Want to Love Him So Bad by the Jelly Beans, River Deep Mountain High, done by Ike and Tina Turner, Maybe I Know by Leslie Gore, I Can Hear Music, recorded by the Beach Boys, and Do a Diddy, recorded by Manfred Mann. Ellie Greenwich was one of the few women to break into pop songwriting in the early 60s. She grew up in Levittown on Long Island and got her start when she was hired as a staff writer by the songwriting team of Lieber and Stoller. She worked out of the Brill Building in Manhattan, the headquarters of many of the top 40 songwriters and producers in the 60s. When the British invasion took over the charts and groups started performing their original material, a lot of songwriters ended up out of work. Greenwich went on to write jingles and also co-produced many of Neil Diamond's early hits. I interviewed her in 1986. At the time, her career was enjoying a brief resurgence with a Broadway review of her songs, which introduced her to listeners who never stopped loving her songs but never knew who wrote them. I asked about the song Chapel of Love, one of the first hits that Greenwich co-wrote and co-produced. That song had originally been cut by the Ronettes. Phil Spector had cut it with the Ronettes but never put it out. Why? Do not ask me. And we always believed in that song. We knew it had to be a spring release or a summer release because <laughs> of the nature of, you know, chapel getting married, June weddings, the whole thing. And what happened was when they did not put that, when Phil Spector didn't put that record out, Jeff and I said, we have to do something with it. And just at that time, a gentleman named Joe Jones came up from New Orleans with a whole slew of people. Amongst them was three girls, which we eventually named the Dixie Cups. And here were all these singers just hanging out at the office, you know, Libra and Stoller's office. And we said, hmm, girls, come here a minute. And we went to the piano and we played it for them and they sang. So it's very, I mean, anybody could sing Chapel of Love, you know? And we said, we have to go in and make this record. And it's funny, in my whole career of being in the studio producing, there were only two songs that I literally walked out of a studio and said, either these records are going to be zippity do nothing go nowhere, or number one records. That was Chapel of Love and Leader of the Pack. Did you have a special rapport with the singers and the girl groups being a woman yourself? I think initially, it's funny, back then, um, because I was so involved in the productions and working with the working on the background vocals and what have you, I was not just, well, here's my song, see ya. I got involved in everything. And it wasn't that accepted back then, a female being in that end of the business. A songwriter, a lyricist, automatic acceptance. A background singer, automatic acceptance. A writer, because Carol King and I were really the only female writers then that I know of that actually sat at the piano and sang the song and really got involved. And that wasn't, because there were so few of us that, you know, it was sort of like looked on and, 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 you know, walked away from a little bit. But what happened was eventually the girl said, gee, we have someone we can really relate to. Somebody we can talk to. We have headaches today. We want to tell somebody who's going to understand better than Ellie. So event- at first it was like, well, who does she think she is giving us orders here or telling us what to do? But on the other end, if you just were very open with them, they saw they could be your friend. And then it became an asset to be a woman dealing with the girl groups. How much did you, when you were starting, and did the groups that you wrote for really know 
about love and sex? We we really know we we knew very little. We we really were we really were, were, were as we said that you know, the good girls, and we we just knew what we read and we knew what we fantasized about, and our experiences really were were very limited. But you could you could if you don't write about what you're what you've experienced, you certainly can write about fantasy. So it comes out the same way. What were some of the problems that you had uh, breaking in and getting accepted, being a woman? Because as you just pointed out, there really weren't many women songwriters in the early 60s. Well, I think I was very fortunate in that most of the early things I got involved in became hits. So what choice right. did so many of these people have when I said, well, hey, you know, I have a little track record here. This was a hit, and this is doing well on the charts, and I'm doing, you know, and it was almost like, well... We don't love, you know, like the musicians would say, we don't love a woman telling us to go like this on your guitar. But I said, look at me as a thing. Forget, you know. And I think because of my success, it made it a little easier. Plus, I did a lot of co-producing with Jeff. So I had a little male protector on one side, you know. So I think the combination of the success and having Jeff there, they really didn't have much of a choice, did they? <laughs> um. You got married to each other, and you know. After all, you'd written songs like "Chapel of Love." You were writing all these, all these. Today, I met the boy I'm going to marry. All, the, all these great love and wedding songs. Not too young to get married. Did you think that you were going to have um, a marriage that was everything that the song said marriage was going to be? Well, I have to like flee in on something. I was, I grew up in Levittown, Long Island on the corner of Starlight and Springtime Lane, you tell me if I thought my marriage was... Yes, I did. I really believed in the little house with the white picket fence and together forevermore and absolutely believed that I was really a dreamer. And I, I think that still can happen. Unfortunately, it didn't happen for us, and I think that was partly the business fault. But yes, I was a ver very much a hopeful romantic. One of the big hit songs that you wrote was leader of the pack, which, which you co-wrote. And um, it was performed by the Shangri-Las, who I always think of as being the tramps of the girl groups because <laughs> they had such a, a, a tough You think image. they were trampier than the Ronettes? <laughs> 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 I mean, Terry, please. <laughs> oh. How did you get to work with those Shangri-Las? Well, um, there was a guy that I knew named George Morton, whom we, because he was also one that was a little eccentric and like would never show up in time, so we ended up calling him Shadow Morton. So Shat George calls me. He has this tape and a bunch of girls he wants me to hear. Brought the tape to the office, and this thing went on. He did this male narration. It was seven minutes long. I said, no, we can't do that. But there was something very interesting in this, in this song, different. I said, who is this singing, this tape like the... You know, I said, wow, it's a very different sound. Saw a picture of them and said, hmm, see, that there's where, what an added thing, what an interesting-looking little group here. And met with them, and the record came out. Big hit. It's now time for a follow-up. So Shadow said, we got to write something together. And at that time, when you made money, you bought yourself boots or motorcycles. <laughs> I mean, that was really what it was all about. So everybody, every male, Jeb, Shadow, the engineer, the, the arranger... They all had motorcycles, and they were always riding motorcycles. I said, why don't we do something with motorcycles? Okay, we can call it. There's always a leader. Or so, the, the head of the group. I said, no, it doesn't sound good. And we just threw titles around. Leader of the pack sounded important. 
And Shadow Morton also had a habit of writing um, little soap operas. His songs all became these little mini soap operas, right? So with his influence, we were, you know, we melodically did certain things, whatever. And he had to have this had to be a sick song. Let's get. And Jeff had written "Tell Laura I Love Her," so he was used to being involved with the sick element. This was new for me. I said, "Hey, as long as it's not too dis- disgusting and I can deal with it." So I think we had everything from the sound effects to motorcycles to boy loving, you know, the girl loving the boy that's forbidden. I mean, all these uh, death. My God, I mean, it was like. Everything was in there, and once again, I like I said, and there's the way she, Mary sounded, the way the whole group looked. I thought the picture was a perfect picture, and the record was just the perfect kind of a thing to be a, a top record. Why don't we hear it? Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is Leader of the Pack, co-written by my guest Ellie Greenwich, and performed by the Shangri Las. Is she really going out with him? Well, there she is. Let's ask her. Betty, is that Jimmy's ring you're wearing? Mm-hmm. It must be great riding with him. Is he picking you up after school today? Mm-mm. By the way, where'd you meet him? I met him at the candy store. He turned around and smiled at me. You get the picture? Yes, we see. That's when I fell for the leader of the pack. My folks were always putting him down. Down, down. That really still sounds great. 
It's fun, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> How did you decide to get in the uh, this, the screeching wheels and and the the motorcycle revving up, all the sound effects? Why did you decide oh, we had to? to. Uh huh. I mean, how could you have a song about a motorcycle without a motorcycle sound in it? I mean, that was half the record. The gimmick, the gimmick. That was the gimmick part of the record. <laughs> Rock music was the music of rebellion, and it really separated children from their parents. Because parents were listening to Steve and Edie Gourmet, and the kids were listening to your records. Um, but you, you were from the suburbs. You were from Levittown. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like you um, had to act a little tougher than you really were in no. order to fit in or anything like that? No, I was, I was, not, I was not a rebel. And I'll never, never be, no, <laughs> any good, no. <laughs> I, I didn't feel I had to prove anything or, or be that different or whatever. I just, first of all, once again, most of the songs that I had the hits with were very romantic, nice songs. I mean, you know, my most off-color song was Hanky Panky, you know, and when people say, and yet my baby does the Hanky Panky, she dances, she does, she, she kisses me, whatever you want it to mean. I left the door wide open. I never said it, you know? Did your parents like your songs? Funny. My parents, um, may they rest in peace, were um, very supportive of what I wanted to do. Didn't quite understand what it was. When my mom used to tell her friends, like, well, you know, my daughter's a songwriter, they would say, well, gee, we're really sorry. So she changed the term to, well, my daughter's a musical production. Well, that's just wonderful that it made more sense to them, you know? And what happened was, because I started having success so early, they were very, of course, fearful like what was she going to get into in this they've heard such stories about the music business the industry so crazy but I mean I am level-headed you know and they did see that and they were very happy for my success because I was very happy with it I mean I was doing my first love I was earning a living at it you know I was married I mean I had the whole all bases covered at that time in my career so they were very happy for me really very proud Songwriter Ellie Greenwich recorded in 1986. She died in 2009 at the age of 68. Fresh Air's series of music interviews from our archive concludes on Labor Day, and that will feature interviews with Pete Seeger and Bruce Springsteen. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. I'm Terry Gross. From all of you good workers, good news to you I'll tell Of how the good old union has come in here to dwell Which side are you on? Which side are you on? My daddy was a miner and I'm a miner's son And I'll stick with the 